The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We, we are 10 months into the Biden administration, and clearly we see that something's not completely right with transatlantic relations. There's two ways to, to think about it. Either we say those are accidents because of, you know, we still don't have a U.S. ambassador to Paris, to the EU, to NATO, or to uh, Berlin. A lot of really talented individuals have been nominated for these positions, but unfortunately they haven't been confirmed yet. But the truth is, I don't think this is only about staffing positions, or this is only about a better coordinating message. I think there's something more structural going on, which is that the U.S. does have shifting priorities, that Europe is less central to uh, the U.S. global outlook than it used to be, and and that this does demand on, on Europeans to step up their, uh, their efforts. It's time to have a frank and honest conversation among allies. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 27th, 2021. France is mad. More specifically, France is mad about Australia reneging on a deal for French submarines and opting to go instead with an American contract. It's all part of AUKUS, a new trilateral security pact between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. that was announced two weeks ago. France recalled its ambassador to the U.S. and otherwise expressed dismay at the development. So what gives? I sat down with Benjamin Haddad, the senior director of the Europe Center at the Atlantic Council, who's an expert on European politics and transatlantic relations. We talked through the French reaction, what might have caused it, and what it all means for the future of transatlantic relations and U.S. strategy. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 27th. Benjamin Haddad on submarine contracts and French anger. All right, Ben, get us started. First, talk to me a little bit about what AUKUS is, and then also what's the deal with those submarines, and what's the relationship between those two things? Yeah. Hi, Jacob. Uh, Well, so AUKUS is a new alliance that's been signed between uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. It was a surprise move, a pretty shock announcement last week, which comes with a huge submarines deal that the United States and the United Kingdom will provide to Australia, nuclear-propelled submarines. And I think, you know, this is uh, the result of growing Chinese assertiveness in the region, in the Pacific, and a choice by Australia to 
modernize its submarine fleet uh, that is coming to obsolescence, but you know, in a in a broader fashion, clearly bring a closer the United States in the region as a, as a strategic partner as they feel this growing threat. And of course, uh, for the United States that has under the Biden administration, but also his predecessors put uh, confronting China at the center of his preoccupation, creating new coalitions and alliances in the region. I think this is a, a foreign policy uh, success. Now, obviously, uh, this come at, at a certain cost, and I think a cost that was overlooked uh, by the Biden administration. Australia already had a deal to build submarines with France, with um, and a consortium that included Naval Group, but also some American companies like uh, Lockheed Martin. Uh, that's something important to understand because uh, when you talk about the, the amounts in, in some of the press coverage, only less of half of that was going to French uh, groups and it was an international consortium. So France had uh, concluded a deal to provide uh, diesel submarines to Australia in 2016. It was a major contract for the French defense industry. But beyond that, it was really sort of the underpinning of a lot of uh, France's relationship with Australia, a new strategic partner for Paris, and France's strategy in the Indo-Pacific. And uh, the AUKUS announcement really came as a shock for the French defense establishment, French policymakers, and, and created a, uh, an earthquake in Paris. Beyond the, the commercial nature of the deal and uh, the fact that France lost this contract, maybe we can go into more details about the contract a little later, but I think what's really important for people to understand uh, when you look at the French reaction is that it is really seen as a breach of trust among allies. The United States, UK and Australia negotiate this agreement in complete secrecy. France had conversations with American interlocutors, with Australian interlocutors in the last few months where uh, you know, nothing previewed this, uh, this agreement. On August 30th, for example, you have a communique, the Australian and the French foreign minister met and they recalled the importance of the strategic partnership and of the submarine agreement. And for France, it was really you know, about its Indo-Pacific strategy where uh, you have two, close to 2 million French citizens in the region France has invested heavily in strategic partnerships with countries like Australia, Japan, India, which incidentally are also U.S. allies in the region. France has conducted freedom of navigation operations in South China Sea, has patrolled the Strait of Taiwan, uh, participates to military exercise alongside the United States, the U.K., Australia, or India in the region. So I think, you know, the, the surprise in Paris really comes from the fact that the Biden administration has put rallying allies, and especially European allies, at the core of its discourse and strategy, has said that it wants to create a transatlantic front to uh, confront China. And so the, the secrecy with which this was negotiated and how it undercuts French's presence in the region, I think, was, was really the, the cause of the strong reaction. And really an unprecedented reaction in Paris. Obviously, Macron decided to recall uh, the French ambassador to the United States. This is the first time in 240 years, this happens. For the historical anecdote, the French ambassador to the United States was actually recalled once, but under US demand, under George Washington, Ambassador Genet was seen as interfering in American politics and trying to get the United States to go to war with the United Kingdom. Uh, at the time, George Washington asked for him to be recalled, which he was only symbolically because he uh, was at risk of facing the guillotine during the French Revolution if he came back in 1794. So he did 
asked for asylum and Alexander Hamilton, who did not like Genet, was kind enough to grant him asylum in the United States. So he did retire and, and live to his death as a farmer in the United States. But so, you know, th- that aside, I think it, it really shows the shock of the, the, the reaction. W- one last word, and, you know, we can, we can have a conversation about it. I do think that the conversation between President Biden and President Macron a few days ago did do much to assuage some of the, the wound and start to overcome this. I think the conversation hit all the right notes, which is that President Biden acknowledged that an open consultation among allies could have been beneficial in, in this case, which is the, it's not really an apology, but it's the beginning of a mea culpa, I think, on at least the process and the method in which this was done. Uh, the United States acknowledge uh, France's role in the Indo-Pacific as a key partner of the United States, acknowledge as well that a capable European defense alongside NATO was important to transatlantic security. And we can also go into more detail on what that could mean in the next few months, what it could mean for the transatlantic relationship, and then also committed to more U.S. support in the Sahel, an important counterterrorism operation in which the French take the lead with European partners, but with strong support on intelligence, surveillance, special forces from the United States. So I think that's positive. But look, uh, it's really important for Americans to listen, not underestimate the, the, the breach of trust uh, this has created in Paris and the potential long-term impact for the French defense establishment and also for French politics, where a lot of the opposition, left and right, has pressured Macron to leave the integrated military command of NATO. This is really the big conversation right now in Paris. So this will have... I think long-term consequences, unfortunately, but I think we can now work to overcome this and also really rethink uh, the relationship between the United States and Europe. So there's a lot to unpack there. I think where I want to start with is the French reaction to this. So it's the thing that's probably gotten the most attention in the U.S. for for good and for ill. Just walk me through, you, you alluded to the recalling of the ambassador, just walk me through sort of the stages of France's reaction to this and the particular Right, so in recalling the ambassador, what were the particular themes that, that were highlighted as like the, the grievances and the things that needed to be addressed most? So recalling the ambassador, you know, is a very strong symbolic move you can do in foreign relations to express discontent. France had never done it in the United States, has done it in recent years with a couple of countries with Turkey uh, over Erdogan's insults against Macron, with Italy when we saw the uh, populist Italian government interfere in French politics with ministers protesting alongside the Gilets Jaunes. Uh, but this is so, it's almost unprecedented. And it is unprecedented in, in the bilateral relations with the United States. France also recalled its ambassador to Australia. So when the ambassador comes back, so first it's a way to express discontent. And it's also a way for the president to speak to the ambassador, consult, and think about the next steps in the relationship and uh, how to go from there. I do think, by the way, that the bilateral relationship with Australia will be in a really bad shape for a long time. I think, you know, this is a, Obviously, the Franco-American relationship is very strong culturally, economically. The two countries cooperate heavily in the Sahel. I mentioned it also in the coalition against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. So this is a really important strategic partnership for France for obvious reasons. So it's not like we can just reset it overnight. But it does pause this question. And I think this is why it was important to uh, send that message to Paris. I would also underscore that, you know, it's important to understand it doesn't come in a vacuum, Right. First, you have the cumulative effect of the four years of Trump, but also 10 months into the Biden administration, there is a sense of 
disappointment among many European allies with respect to an administration that has come proclaiming that America is back, that it would put Europe and allies at the center of its strategy. We saw already uh, some protest in, in August, uh, mostly in Berlin and London, over the lack of consultation coordination over the Afghan withdrawal, especially in the weeks that led to the fall of, of Kabul. The United States did consult with its allies over its timeline of withdrawal when President Biden decided on the uh, withdrawal leading to September. Uh, but Europeans have also felt that it had very little clout and influence also in the decision-making process in Washington. So that was a first shock. And then you had other irritants in the relationship in the last few months. We have only just announced the lifting of uh, the travel ban on European citizens traveling to uh, the United States, which has really disrupted the lives of individuals, families, and businesses across the Atlantic, especially in the last few months as the uh, European Union has exceeded the, the rates of vaccination of the United States. This has really looked at irrational and incomprehensible. And, you know, a, a nod here to a Brookings Senior Fellow, Sylvia Bonin, who's done a ton of, of work, I think, publicly, but also behind the scene on, on this ban. And then a lot of the Trump irritants, like the tariffs on steel and aluminum and some of the trade disagreements on technology and, and other things are still here. So once again, there is also a context also that, that leads to uh, this decision. And so, so that's the contextual factor. And then there's the question of the contract, right? So you, you mentioned a bit about the contract. So walk us through what exactly was in the contract and, and what about the breach made it feel particularly egregious from a French perspective? Well, look, this was a major contract, you know, it, some estimate all the way to $90 billion to deliver uh, diesel submarines to Australia, not only deli- deliver them, but build them in Australia with Australian workforce over, over the next decades. Now, Australians have made a, a few uh, criticism of this contract, or rather of the implementation, pointing to budget overruns, pointing to delays. Uh, pointing out as well to the technology that they feel is obsolete, especially in the face of growing uh, Chinese threats. And that technology is the difference between diesel and nuclear, right? Diesel and nuclear. Now, these are not nuclear arms summaries. These right. nuclear propel submarines. important to understand the distinction. Now, on the technology piece, it comes as a huge surprise for a lot of uh, French watchers because the French Navy has nuclear-propelled submarines, and it was actually mm-hmm. an Australian request at the time to convert those submarines to diesel because mostly because of public opinion at the time in Australia, they did not want to uh, host nuclear propelled submarines. So the technology argument doesn't really hold. When it comes to uh, budget and and delays, that is a a question. It is actually quite standard in such contracts. It's also largely linked to the sovereignty clause in the contract uh, that Australia had requested that most of these submarines be built, maintained on Australian salt for it's important to note that that clause had, is actually not part of the agreement uh, between uh, the United States, Australia, and NEA Kingdom. As for delays, unfortunately, the new contract will mean that Australia will have uh, submarines much later than it would have on the, on the French contract. So there will be a few years, maybe a decade, in which Australia will be left without submarines, which would not have been the case with the French contract. So we'll probably have to lease submarines from other countries. So, you know, there, from a, a technical standpoint, I think there's a lot of question about whether some of the Australians' points hold. What does hold, though, I think, is the political and, and, and strategic dimension of this. I think clearly 
the choice that Australia made, the new Australian government, because this is a decision by Scott Morrison, the contract at the time had been negotiated by Malcolm Turnbull. The decision is a strategic one to turn to the United States as its main partner in the region. You can discuss whether it, it was an either or because the United States was already an important partner of Australia and that contract allowed France to, uh, to get in. But I understand the, the impetus to get close to Washington in this changing uh, strategic environment, of course. And you mentioned there's a consortium of, of manufacturers right, involved in, in producing the French submarines. Is it something to do with the composition of that consortium that contributed to how angry you know, the French reaction has been? Is it, is it the case that like, there's a significant component of that that's state-owned or that it's anything like that? No, I mean, it is state-owned. Naval right. Group is partly state-owned. But I wouldn't really look to that to explain the reaction. I think really look at the breach of trust among allies. Look at the secrecy with which this was done. France cared about its relationship with Australia and did not see clear signals that Australia was going to get out of this contract. And then more importantly, the relationship with the United States. What's incomprehensible in this is why the United States could not find a way to bring France in a new arrangement, either a new contract, but at least in this alliance, acknowledging the role that France plays in the Indo-Pacific as contributing to a transatlantic strategy in the region. So talk a bit about what that role is in the Indo-Pacific, right? So in in the U.S. and in, in the sort of think tank world, there's been all this buzz for, for a little while now about the Quad, right? And how in the U.S. there's this burgeoning, burgeoning alliance between you know, the United States, Japan, India, and Australia to sort of counter Chinese influence in the Indo-Pacific. What role has, has France played in the Indo-Pacific? And, you know, from a French perspective, what would be sort of the ideal level of engagement on, on these types of strategic issues? Well, you know, the question you're asking is really interesting because beyond just the question of the Indo-Pacific, it does pause the question of what the United States expects its European allies to do and how we think about our transatlantic relationship in the next few years. And that's really at the heart of a lot of our strategic conversations. France has close to 2 million citizens in the region. It's invested heavily in the last few years in a bilateral relationship with India, and we see the French doubling down right now with India after losing the contract with Australia, with Japan, and and with Australia. And that means not only these massive contracts, but a lot of political consultation, a lot of think tank consultation. We've seen the multiplication of track two dialogues, for example, between France and Australia in uh, the last few years. The French Navy is present in the region and conducts, like the UK, the two uh, main European actors there, freedom of navigation operation of South China Sea, so upholding international law, maritime law in the region, and even in the Strait of Taiwan a few months ago, uh, provoking uh, Chinese anger. So even though the French maintain their autonomy in the region with their own partnerships and their own operation, uh, you can clearly argue that it does contribute to the global U.S. strategy of propping up democratic allies and pushing back against China in, in the region. But to the, the point about the transatlantic relationship, it is clear that the United States has decided to invest mostly in the relationship with its Asian allies in the region. The Quad is a good example. Some voices have asked, for example, whether uh, some European observers or partners could be brought into the Quad. It is actually, unfortunately, ironic that AUKUS was announced the day before the EU strategy in, on the Indo-Pacific was supposed to be rolled out by Joseph Borrell, the high representative of uh, the European Union, which, uh, you know, some people have asked me whether 
this was on purpose. I certainly don't think this was on purpose by the U.S. administration. I think they just even missed the fact that the EU was rolling out an Indo-Pacific strategy. And did this pose the question of what our transatlantic relationship is about? Does the United States need its European allies to support it in, the, in its Indo-Pacific strategy? Or do Americans prefer Europeans to focus on Europe and its neighborhood to keep a stable and strong European continent while the United States pivots to Asia and focuses on China with its Asian allies? That's a real question. Another question is, of course, you know, in the broader uh, strategy to confront China, it is possible that the United States would uh, prefer uh, its European allies to keep China out of Europe. And so focus on building technological resilience, infrastructure on the neighborhood in regions like uh, North Africa, the Western Balkans, uh, while the U.S. focuses on Asia. So this is a conversation we need to have. And this is why uh, I think we have to go beyond just a broad discourse on America is back and on we need uh, allies to really start having a conversation about burden sharing as allies and friends, not the one we had under the Trump administration, I suppose, that was really, I think, excessively uh, focused on defense spending, sort of artificial metrics on 2%, but really ask ourselves, you know, what does the United States not want to do anymore? Where does it need Europeans to step up? And this is why I think the current European debate over European strategic autonomy, which is getting Europeans the means, the capabilities to act on their own if necessary to defend their security and interest, especially in their neighborhood, especially in the areas where the US now for 10 years has signaled that it wants to withdraw and to not want to focus anymore, is urgent. President Biden in his speech uh, celebrating the Afghan withdrawal made clear that the United States would now focus on defending its vital national interest when it came to military interventions. This is a completely legitimate stance for the president of the United States to make, but of course it has security consequences for uh, Europeans. What are vital national interests? I do think that upholding Article 5 commitments on collective defense clearly represent a vital national interest in the United States. Uh, president Biden has made it clear, he's called Article 5 a uh, holy obligation. And, you know, clearly, if you had tomorrow an aggression against the Baltic state, this goes at the heart of the entire U.S. security order. But if tomorrow you have a crisis in Libya, if you have a crisis like the one in the 90s in the Western Balkans, if you have a crisis in the, in the East Med, does that represent a vital national interest in the United States? Or should Europeans have the ability to respond on their own to defend their own security? That, I think, is a, is a question mark. Look at the crisis in Syria over the last 10 years that had a considerable impact on EU institutions when it comes to terror attacks, when it comes to migration wave that really stressed European institutions. We had uh, two presidents in a row, uh, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, that made clear that they did not see this as a direct challenge to US security uh, interests. So this is, I think, a conversation that we need to have. And, and that debate on the Indo-Pacific, I think, participates to it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me 
now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So one of the reactions, I think, in some quarters of the U.S., particularly among foreign policy watchers, is right that like one interpretation of, of the French reaction to this is that the U.S., particularly in, in recent years and, you know, maybe even more broadly, has, has begun to focus very publicly on the Five Eyes alliance, right, between, between four other English-speaking countries, right, with New Zealand, Australia, the U.K., and Canada, and, and Five Eyes has become as it has always been, but has, has become increasingly big part of the U.S. you know geo strategy and all that. I, I'm curious how much you think sort of anxieties about the growing role of the Five Eyes in, in U.S. you know foreign policy vision has to do with with the French reaction here, right? Because there's there's a way in which that comes at the expense of of other transatlantic relationships. Look, I wouldn't. Mean- exaggerate the strategic importance that Five Eyes plays in the eyes of uh, American policymakers. I think, you know, especially in the British press, you see a lot of commentary about the Anglophone world and Anglophone values. And, you know, it sounds like Western Churchill stuff. I don't really think that animates the Biden administration. I think the Biden administration is focusing on containing China with its allies, especially in, in the region. Now, it's true that Five Eyes may have played a role in how they fought about AUKUS because of intelligence sharing and technology transfer. And I do think that there must have been at some point a debate within the administration on what, on how to uh, approach the French question, whether we bring in the French or not in, in this new arrangement. And, and probably the intelligence dimension of this and the fact that there's just more arrangement, more trust also with partners like the United Kingdom and Australia did play a role in excluding the French from this arrangement. What it does show, though, is that we might be coming to a phase where the U.S. values flexibility more than anything else. Coalitions a la carte, different kinds of alliances according to the issue. The mission determines the coalition that other had said 15 years ago, rather than just be constrained with uh, the transatlantic alliance. You do have interesting new formats that have been created with the EU and especially the Transatlantic Tech and Trade Council, which will start uh, next week in, in Pittsburgh, and I think has a lot of interesting uh, work ahead of it. Uh, this was a uh, uh, proposal first by the European Union during the transition before the, the Biden inaugural uh, that the administration picked up on and created after President Biden's trip to Brussels, which is really intends to shape common norms and standards on uh, technology, on data privacy, on AI, on supply chain, countering disinformation, really seizing on all the the digital agenda that uh, the EU has been pushing forth in the last few years really as a as a global uh, norms and rules setter. I think on issues like this, the US does see clearly the, the value of the European Union. That's an innovation in the last few years. But I think on other issues, especially on strategic and military issues, there will be probably more flexibility according to the challenge. I'm curious, there have been lots of reactions in the US, so maybe more cynical reactions to, to how France has responded to this. And one of them, and I confess that as someone who didn't have the full backstory on this, but you know, is pretty interested in French politics and, and you know, French 
foreign policy developments in general, one one thing that I noticed, and I think other people noticed, is that there is a there's a presidential election coming up in France, right? In it might be nine months, eight months at this point. And I, I'm curious to what extent you feel like one that this is something that's a legitimately salient political issue in France, like this either one, the relationship with the U.S. and two, the submarines in particular, and two, to what extent political pressure, regardless of the direction that it's coming from, might have influenced the way that this got handled in in France? I think this is a very heated political issue, but I think the reaction would have been the same at any time in the mandate. And in this case, uh, Macron handled this very responsibly. If you look at some of the heated rhetoric that came from both the traditional right, the far right, the, the far left. You know, anecdotally, uh, it's a center-right Republican president, Nicolas Sarkozy, who brought back France into the NATO Integrated Military Command in 2008. And his party is now calling for leaving the Integrated Military Command. You know, something I would like to underline as well that's really important is that the people in the French political and defense establishment who have been promoting this Indo-Pacific strategy and this partnership with Australia, India, and Japan in the last decade are usually the most Atlanticist, pro-American of the bunch and see this also as a way to contributing not only to defending French national interest, but also to being good allies. And so I think this also is, is part of the shock. This will play in French politics. It is playing currently, to be honest, NATO is not necessarily popular in France, a country that has a, a a strong military sovereign tradition. So, you know, this this might have longer term consequences. Part of, I think, what's been interesting for me is it, so in the United States, defense contracts are not something that have any particular political salience, right? I don't think elections in the US are, are not won and lost on defense contracts. And I think in general, there's there's more of an apathy toward foreign policy issues among the electorate. Explain to me, you did say that this is something that is very politically contentious in France. Does that just have to do with the NATO factor? Sort of what are the dimensions on which this, this plays out in French politics? I think it's really the trust among allies. I think it's, it's really you know, the idea that all of this was done in complete secrecy by a Biden administration that said that they wanted to restore trust among allies. I, I wouldn't say I've been surprised, but it has been interesting to know that this is played in, uh, in in French politics. This has been a, a subject of conversation among among people. Now, look, I mean, in France, like elsewhere, like in the United States, of course, domestic factors and jobs and growth and uh, housing and all these issues will uh, be much more central during the French presidential election. But look, keep in mind that you know it, it depends what you call foreign policy, right? For example, the European Union is not a foreign policy issue in France, and it's not in most European countries. It's deeply intertwined with national debates about values and national identity and sovereignty. You could argue that, to a large extent, the last French presidential election between Emmanuel Macron and uh, Marine Le Pen uh, was mostly contested on uh, the vision of Europe, the vision of the European Union, France's role in it. And it might be the case next time if it's Macron against Marine Le Pen or Éric Zemmour, another far-right candidate who's rising very fast right now. And, And so in this broader debate between nationalism and European Union between openness and closeness, the relationship with allies in the United States and NATO also plays a, a factor. And so to the extent that that plays a factor, right, the, the reaction, j- just gaming out the administration's reaction in France, right, the, the reaction, I- interpreting it through that lens, right, the, 
the polling of the ambassador and sort of the the general posture of you know grievance and of of being legitimately angry that contributes to that view in what sense in in the sense that it's it's sort of an effort to to reaffirm how important alliances can be to to France or is it walk me through that yeah well i think the recalling of the ambassador was was really once again to uh, to make a point to make a statement mostly uh, to the united states but also domestically that france was uh, was reacting to this and now i think the real question is the next few months is uh, how do we build upon this i mentioned earlier in the conversation they made a point about european a capable robust european defense alongside uh, nato now is i think a good opportunity to have a serious conversation about how the united states can embrace a more ambitious strategic Europe within the transatlantic relationship. We have a good window of opportunity for this in the first semester 2022 when France will hold the rotating presidency of the European Union for six months, incidentally at the same time as the French presidential election. And I think defense issues will be, as it always is, very high on the agenda of the French presidency. For a long time, I think the U.S. has had such a sort of a schizophrenic approach to European defense. On the one hand, calling its European allies to spend more on uh, their capabilities and, and military budgets. But on the other hand, always finding something uh, to be reluctant about when it came to European defense initiatives that were seen as potentially duplicating NATO as, uh, or, or pushing the United States out of uh, transatlantic security. I think it's really time to overcome these fears. I think there's a, a serious conversation to be had about uh, the complementarity between European defense, especially in European neighborhood, and NATO as the cornerstone of collective defense, especially when it comes to strategic threats such as Russia. The two must go hand in hand. It is really important because, look, this is first and foremost the responsibility of Europeans, of course. It is about investing in capabilities, it is about putting more emphasis on common projects, of course, and putting the political will will when when it's needed. But the U.S. does have agency also in how Europeans think about this. And, you know, I sometimes have conversation with American policymakers who say, well, we're never going to oppose what Europeans want to do. That's not entirely true. And you do have, first, you have a lot of technical hurdles on third-party access to political projects and things like this. But beyond that, there's a broader political and, and strategic message, I think, that the Biden administration can convey, especially to the most Atlanticist members of Europe, countries like Germany's countries in, in Central Europe, that have usually echoed some of the American reluctance on European defense because they were worried about upsetting Americans, because they were worried about hurting the alliance. If you have a strong signal that comes from Washington and says, we need you to do this, we need you to step up because now we're, we have other priorities, we're shifting away, so we need you to be able to uh, secure yourselves in, in your own neighborhood, I think that could go a long way for a lot of uh, France's partner partners in the European Union. And uh, there will be strong expectations in Paris uh, for this in the next few months, but, but don't do it for Paris, I would say. This is important for European and transatlantic security. This is in, in the interest of the United States. And so to close, you, you'd mentioned that, you know, that France's relationship with Australia for, for the most part is really damaged, right? And damaged in a real way that might be enduring. But the US, by, by contrast, you have more optimism, right? For what the, the long-term prospects might be. So you, you sketch out a few things there, but where do you think, right? Putting on your, your forecasting hat, right? Like, how do you see this evolving between the US and France in the coming months? Even over the course of the week, right? There's been some sort of, you know, rapprochement, some sort of like, you know, getting back together. 
what's your sense of how this is going to evolve in the coming months? Obviously, you know, choices on behalf of the Biden administration and, and choices among folks in Europe will have something to do with that. But curious what you think. Yeah. Well, as you said, I mean, I think we all have agency on this. As analysts and think tanks, we can come up with proposals on how to especially uh, step up the effort on, on defense cooperation and uh, as well in the Sahel and the Indo-Pacific. I think I hope that American policymakers have, have heeded the message and, uh, and, and the French as well. But look, I mean, let's take this moment as an opportunity, right? We, we are 10 months into the Biden administration, and clearly we see that something's not completely right with transatlantic relations. There's two ways to, to think about it. Either we say those are accidents because of, you know, we still don't have a U.S. ambassador to Paris, to the EU, to NATO, or to uh, Berlin. A lot of really talented individuals have been nominated for these positions, but unfortunately, they haven't been confirmed yet. Uh, I'm really glad that Karen Donfried was confirmed on Thursday uh, to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. So, but the truth is, I don't think this is only about staffing positions, or this is only about a better coordinating message. I think there's something more structural going on, which is that the U.S. does have shifting priorities, that Europe is less central to uh, the U.S. global outlook than it used to be, and, and that this does demand on, on Europeans to step up their, uh, their efforts. It's time to have a frank and honest conversation among allies. So let, let's use this Afghanistan crisis and this AUKUS crisis as an opportunity to really rethink how uh, we view the transatlantic relationship with a, a much more robust and ambitious European partner at the core of it. As I often tell my American friends, I know that the term strategic autonomy is not popular and probably we should, we should drop it just to be able to make progress on concrete projects. But the truth is the opposite of autonomy is weak and dependent. And you don't want allies that are weak and dependent. So I would say let's you know, move away from the Franco-American conversation that's not that interesting. It's interesting for me as a French think tanker in Washington, of course, but the truth is for American interests, what really matters is how do you think about your European allies? How do you think about this transatlantic relationship going forward? Let's not try to go back to normal. Let's not try to just erase the Trump years. And, you know, how do we think strategically in a way that makes sense for both sides? I think we have, we may have an opening now in the next few months. And that is all the time we have. Ben, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your podcast is produced by Jen Patiahal, and your music is performed by Sophia Yan. I was your audio engineer this week. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast if the podcast service that you listen on allows you to do so. And if so, and if not, please do share us widely. Share us on Facebook, share us on Twitter. And think about recommending Lawfare Podcasts to the people in your life who would love to learn more. And thanks, as always, for listening.